Hello and welcome to the Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neeb. The words Palestine and Israel invariably conjure up images of an age-old religious conflict. But how old really is this conflict? What are its origins? And what is it really like for people living in this region? Today we are joined again by Pace Davis. In the previous episode, Pace shared with us his journey through severe lifelong depression and recurring suicidal thoughts. On one occasion, Pace confided to me that he had wished to die, but he wanted to die doing work that he considered meaningful and worthy. So after he finished his studies, which included learning Arabic, Pace went to Palestine under the pretense of being a backpacking tourist and began to work with the International Solidarity Movement. This is an organization led by Palestinians, but also comprising Israelis and other foreign nationals, whose objective is to support the popular Palestinian resistance through nonviolent means. They would organize and join unarmed protests against the oppression and dispossession of Palestinians, and would protect them in vulnerable situations such as walking their children to school through hostile neighborhoods where they would otherwise be stoned, or helping them tend and harvest their olive groves in the narrow windows of the year when they were allowed to do so, while protecting them from the constant threat of being attacked by neighboring settlers. Several of Pace's colleagues were killed while doing this work, but he made it back alive, and today he is going to tell us all about it. At my request, he is first going to go over the basic historical background of the Israel-Palestine situation, and then he will share his experiences of working in Palestine to support the popular resistance and take questions from the audience. If you enjoy visiting the Room of Lives, please consider supporting me by donating dye or ether to abhranil.eth. That's A B H R. A-N-I-L dot E-T-H. All right. Um, I'm Pace Davis. Um, uh, today I'm going to be talking about life and resistance in Palestine. Um, I uh, went to UT and I studied Arabic here. And after I graduated, I lived in the West Bank for a little over six months, uh, working with an organization called the International Solidarity Movement. And they work in the West Bank and have off and on worked in Gaza uh, since 2001 and some in East Jerusalem as well. Um, almost all of my time was spent in the West Bank with them, except for entering um, entering Israel to do legal coordination things when there were legal cases to handle. Um, so uh, I guess I was asked to give a little background on the history of Palestine. And it's interesting because I think that you can't talk about Palestinians without talking about Israelis in the modern day context, right? And I think, interestingly enough, you can actually read about Israelis without the mention of Palestinians, right? Even though they're really intertwined in the exact same way, right? I think even you could argue that the modern identity couldn't exist without the other modern identity, that they are, uh, that they, they, they could exist, right? But as they exist today, it is due to the relation, much of the relationships that they have. 
Um, so does everyone here know where uh, the West Bank, Gaza, and Israel is in the world? Does everyone already know kind of where we're talking about? I'm, I'm happy to show. So I'm going to scroll in. So this is the middle. This is the middle. This is considered the Middle East right here, right? Um, you have a, okay, so you have, you have kind of Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Oman, some of the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, you have Jordan, um, and then uh, Egypt is considered the Middle East, also North Africa, depending on who you ask, and then right here, this small country south of Lebanon and west of Jordan is Israel, and then this small area, is the West Bank, and then this is the Gaza Strip. So this is what we're going to be talking about. And I lived here for the vast majority of the time I was there. Um, and I never entered the Gaza Strip. I knew some people that did. It was very difficult. Um, it is a total land blockade and a sea blockade. The only way in when I was here was to go all the way to, um, to uh, Cairo and to get a visa and then travel all the way back up here and cross in. That is no longer possible. Um, if you want to go now, um, if you're not a reporter, Israel occasionally allows reporters in, occasionally they allow doctors in, but everyone else has to be smuggled under, through a tunnel. And that's currently the only way into the Gaza Strip if you are not one of those very special classes of people. Um, uh, so anyway, um, a little background. Um, so this area, there's two terms. There's Palestine, and then there's historic Palestine. And historic Palestine is, is this entire area that now includes Israel. Um, by historic Palestine, what people mean is the land from the Jordan River to the sea was called Palestine for much of kind of for, for the AD period of, of, of human history, right? Um, and in fact, it was... It was um, like Gaza City was this incredibly important trade port. Haifa is a very important city. Um, Jerusalem, obviously very important. Tel Aviv actually wasn't that important, um, even though it's one of the major cities now. Uh, but there's other important cities. Um, they were big trade route cities. And um, kind of leading up to the creation of the State of Israel, the Ottoman Empire had controlled, uh, the Romans had controlled it, and it passed basically hand by hand, and eventually the Ottomans got control of it. Um, and so, um, at the end of the 19th century, um, a group of uh, a group of uh, a group formed called the Lovers of Zion, and their goal was to create a home a home state or a nation for the Jewish people. Right, um, and interestingly enough, they actually were modeling their idea for a state on the kind of settler colonial context that created the United States of America. Right. Protestants like found uh, British rule to be kind of gross and sinful. So they came to the Americas and they slowly expanded west um, and other countries have been the same. South Africa. There are a lot of countries where uh, uh, um, uh, populations had been had been put into the land and then slowly taken more and more of the land over. So this is the basis of, of the, the Zionist movement, right? To look for a home. There were, there were like several other places looked at, but eventually it was settled on that historic, like historic Israel would be the home, right? So by 1870, they've already raised money 
and they've begun settling they've begun settling Jewish settlers throughout Palestine, right? And at the time question who used to live there at that time? So it's interesting. So at the time, and by 1870, um, there were several groups of people. There were Christians, there were Muslims, and there were Jews. Um, and, 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 and it's interesting because this will come up later. But you want to think of the Jewish residents at that time as Arab because they have been there for thou thousands of years, right? Um, there's even like a very small Samaritan group up here in the West Bank. That has a document that was given its first document of like protection in 41 AD. So there's this really interesting historic, uh, historic kind of mixing of populations here. Um, and then Jewish settlers start coming, and it's actually not a big deal for for quite some time. For the first like about 40 years, the numbers are kind of climbing, um, and and somewhere around 1910, tensions start flaring up about this settlement, right? There starts being some tensions in small in small villages and cities of this idea, kind of the same thing we, we you might think of today as as this like kind of anti-immigrant thing where like, oh, there's so many of them, their population's increasing. Um, and then following and then and then and then as World War I is happening, right, the Ottoman Empire is fighting this war, and the British uh, release a statement called the Balfour Declaration in 1917 saying that they have an intention to create a Jewish homeland in historic Palestine. Um, and there's like some other text in that. And one of the things is that they said something about creating a, a, a home, a, a, a Jewish nation or a Jewish state in historic Palestine without displacing the current residents. So creating some kind of divided state system where everyone's still there. Um, and following the Ottoman Empire's defeat and dissolution at the end of World War I, um, the Brits assume control of, of what they call Mandate Palestine, right? This is the period of the, of, of the Mandate Palestine, or the Mandate of Palestine. Um, so it's under British security control from, from the end of World War I um, until 1948, when, when Israel declares its independence. Um, so... Um, so during that time, there there are like kind of flashpoint uh, issues that take happen. Like there's one in Haifa, um, there's one in in Yaffa, or um, uh, there's one in Yaffa near in the south of Tel Aviv uh, in 1921. There's a really interesting story of um, of two Jewish communist parties were having May Day marches, and they met in the street in 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 Yaffa, and they started fighting. There were about 50 on each side. So this kind of brutal fight starts, right? And then um, and then the police get involved, but they're overpowering all the police. And so then Christian and Muslim residents get involved, and this word spreads that, that these two Jewish communist groups have basically started attacking Muslim and Christian residents, and there's basically a pogrom that happens um, in, in the city, right, against Jewish residents. And so with tensions escalating, right, there's these, there's these, these kind of outbreaks happening. And, uh, and, and, and Palestinians in the local cities are kind of forming committees uh, dealing, with this, uh, dealing with this settlement issue. They're going to the British government and they're saying, this is getting out of hand. There's so many settlers coming in. Uh, they're buying up big tracts of land. Like, what are they doing? Um, and, and, and to be clear, Zionism had never tried to hide the fact that they actually had a plan to have a homeland there. 
So this is not a, this is not a secret, right? Um, it's only later that this kind of gets rewritten. Um, but at the time, it was very, it was very open, right? Um, and so as a result, uh, some, of the, uh, some of the Zionist leaders form what is called the Haganah, and, the, and, and later the Ergun, and also Levi. Um, these are what we think of as paramilitary organizations. Um, the Haganah is considered one of the more mild. It becomes the Israeli military. The Ergun actually splits off from the Haganah because they think the Haganah is too soft. Um, and they start carrying out uh, security operations and also attacks on Muslim and Christian residents of historic Palestine um, and British, uh, especially the Ergun. The Ergun um, famously bombed the St. David Hotel or King David Hotel in 1946, killing 91 people and injuring 46, many of them British officers. So there's this, there's this like tension rising where, where there's like, there's like kind of flash offs between Palestinian residents. There's, there's, um, there's fighting with these paramilitary organizations. There are splits because the paramilitary organizations think that the, the original one is, is too gentle and collaborative with the British government. And so the more radical one starts and they actually start killing British officers regularly to try to get the British to leave um, or to get the British to give them their homeland. And so in the Palestinian uh, leadership at the time is trying to work with the British because they're trying to also secure a nation, right? And if you think about this in the context of what else is happening in the rest of the world through the 20s, the 30s, and then the 40s, especially after World War II, all of these nations are being declared independent from their colonial powers, right? And so this is not happening in a vacuum. This is happening as the British are losing India, the British, <laughs> as the British are fighting to keep India at the time, right? Uh, they're struggling there um, in Burma, right? Uh, so they're also dealing with this, and there's kind of, uh, some of the documents from the British at the time are just like, basically like, this is exhausting. Everyone wants this place, kind of, we're kind of, Everyone hates us too, right? Um, and so, anyway, uh, after World War II, this officially ends in um, uh, 1948. May 14th, 1948, um, Israel declares its uh, independence. However, the actual skirmishes that create the state of Israel, modern state of Israel, and basically uh, create the current, beginning of the current situation that we know of today in the West Bank, Gaza, in Israel um, is about December 1947. The paramilitary units go into like full force attacks. They start they start fighting. Um, it takes I think about a month for the Arab League to send anybody. But um, in the beginning, they just basically go from village to village and they expel the populations of the villages. Um, it's done in a variety of ways. There are uh, there there are threats of force. There is force. There are some massacres used. Um, there is. Um, uh, they're like uh, cases of them, uh, say, sexually assaulting all the women in the village and then sending some of the women to the next village to say what's going to happen if they arrive. Um, in Haifa, there's a really interesting story where the British give them uh, a head warning. So the British are supposed to coordinate with both the Palestinians and the, 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 the Zionist uh, paramilitaries, later military movements. Um, but they give like a day advance warning to uh, the Haganah, and so the Haganah basically set up a shelling uh, uh, kind of coordination, and they shell almost all the Palestinian residents 
towards the water and they're all put on boats and they're taken to Lebanon mostly and they become permanent refugees. Um, and so the estimates of the total displacement that happens um, uh, over this like seven months is um, 700,000 Palestinians become refugees, right? And, and it's interesting because refugee can mean two things. Refugee can mean you ended up in Jordan or Lebanon or Egypt and you can't ever go back. But refugee can also mean that you ended up in, uh, in the Gaza Strip or the West Bank and you could never go back inside what, it, what becomes Israel. Um, and so that's the beginning of this, uh, of this, what is now talked about in this really interesting way as it's like ongoing forever conflict that's been going on for thousands of years. Really, it's not even 100 years old, right? Um, and so, so after 48, there are basically constant, uh, basically constant skirmishes uh, between, uh, basically, so the West Bank uh, becomes under Jordanian control, the Gaza Strip ends up under Egyptian control. And during the next, let's see, uh, what is that, 30, 29 years until 1967, uh, there's basically this ongoing, uh, this ongoing kind of tit-for-tat attacks that happen. Um, Palestinians, refugees will enter and attack Israeli troops in Israel. Israeli troops will enter the West Bank and attack uh, Palestinian militants, right? And uh, the refugees, um, it's interesting because now it's, it's a little different, but at the time, like, refugees weren't, were, were actually could be, like, imprisoned. People could be taken into prison for calling themselves Palestinians. Um, and and um, at the same time as this is progressing, Arab nationalism is rising in this region, right? Because uh, after you think about after World War II, the Cold War starts. So we have the Communist bloc, we have the Western bloc, right? And so many of the Arab nations either kind of hard ally or soft ally with the communist movements in China and the Soviet Union. And so uh, under Gimel Abdel Nasser, the leader of Egypt at the time, as we get into the, as we get into the, the 50s and 60s, um, uh, and, uh, and other leaders, we see what, what this idea of this like kind of single Arab nation, this idea of, uh, or this single Arab uh, uh, identity. Uh, and he's considered kind of the leader of this, of this movement. And this includes Jordan, to a degree, uh, Syria and Lebanon uh, and, and Iraq. Anyway, so um, in 1967, the Six Day War breaks out, and um, and Israel wins a decisive victory. I mean, just brutally defeats the uh, the the um, Arab fighters from Egypt and Jordan and Syria. And they take control over the West <laughs> Bank, um, the Golan Heights, uh, the Gaza Strip, and, and a little bit of the Sinai in Egypt. Um, and it's interesting because one of the, the odd historical issues that's come up around the Six Day War is the, is the um, for, for many, many years, the story was that Egypt started it. Um, and then people started trying to look into the actual, um, like, like, you just hear it on the news, it'll be like this thing. The Arabs started the, the, the Six Day War. Um, but I, I, I got some, I wanted to get some quotes together uh, because I thought this was interesting. 
Um, to give kind of an example of what I'm, I'm going to talk about on a larger scale of kind of what I think has happened. Um, so Jenner, General, uh, I, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Matituahu Peled, who was the chief of logistical command during the war and one of 12 members of Israel's general staff in March 1972 is quoted as saying, this thesis according to which the danger of genocide hung over us in June 1967 and according to which Israel was fighting for her very physical survival was nothing but a bluff which was born and bred after the war. Um, and, um, uh, and then uh, Menachem Begin, the, uh, the, one, the leader of the Ergun and later Prime Minister for Israel is quoted as saying, in June 1967, we had a choice. The Egyptian army concentrations in the Sinai approached, approaches did not prove that Nasser was really about to attack us. We must be honest with ourselves. We decided to attack him. And so um, if you know much about the conflict, a lot of the times the, the, the Six-Day War is referred to as this Arab aggression war and kind of Israel throws it back and then, and then takes this territory as kind of a security coordination requirement because they were attacked. And that's the story that you'll still hear told today. Um, following that, there's a 73 war. And this is the, one of the rare times that Israel's actually at real risk. They're attacked surprise, during Yom Kippur. They're surprise attacked. Um, they, they, they win again, but it's actually like a, it's, it's actually scary. Um, it's about 20 days. Um, and, then, and then time marches on. Um, and now, right, um, we have all of the Palestinian population in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip, and then the Golan Heights and a little bit of the Sinai are under uh, Israeli control. Um, and so um, they're under Israeli military control, right? Because under uh, international law, if you occupy a territory, you can't take it. You can't annex occupied territory. You're allowed to administrate it, but you eventually have to settle it by returning it, right? You're not allowed to transfer populations into occupied territory, um, things of that nature. And so uh, all Palestinians in both of these regions end up under Israeli military, tri basically tribunal control. <coughs> and they still are there today. That hasn't changed. Um, so going on a little bit further, we have the first Intifada, which happens in 1988, um, it or I guess late 87. It lasts, by some estimations, till 1993. Um, Intifadas like to shake off. That's what it means in Arabic. So the first shaking off. And it's, uh, and it's uh, this first period of really popular uprising against the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. Um, the first six months are like relatively nonviolent. It's boycotts. Um, it's, uh, it's like marches, protests, right? Um, and as the death toll rises, uh, armed fighters, factions start fighting more and more and more. Um, and then it goes on right till 93. It ends, they lose, obviously. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a pretty crushing thing, right? Because really that, you know, there's no real military might in the Gaza Strip or, or West Bank, right? So these are, these are like paramilitary, basically. Palestinian factions um, kind of making like surprise attacks um, um, and sometimes doing uh, suicide bombings on um, Israeli populations. Um, so at the end of all of this, uh, we end up at the Oslo Accords in 1995. And the Oslo Accords create the current situation 
that you will find if you visit the West Bank. The Oslo Accords are an agreement under which the West Bank was divided into three areas. And this map, if it looks confusing and overwhelming, it's because it is. Um, but let's get a little closer and I'll try to explain. This is today, so this is not going to be an accurate 1995 map. All of this blue and this white is area C. The lighter color right here is area B, and the darker color is area A. So what happens is, um, at the end of the Oslo Agreement between uh, uh, Prime Minister of Israel at the time, Isaac Rabin, and, um, and Yashad Arafat, uh, the agreement is reached under which Palestinians will slowly gain control of the West Bank over the next four years. So this is the original agreement. Uh, this A, B, and C agreement is only supposed to last four years. So area A are the Palestinian cities generally, right? So this is Nablus in the north. Um, uh, this is Kolkiria, this is Bukharam, uh, and um, those are under full Palestinian civil and security control, which means that there are Palestinian police, right? Uh, area B is Palestinian civil control and Israeli military control, and Area C is full Israeli civil and military control. Um, so what doesn't happen is over the next four years, the land is never ceded, right? Um, and uh, and the Prime Minister of Israel at the time is assassinated after the Oslo Accords are signed. Um, some people point to that happening as one of the things that really gets in the way of this happening because uh, basically every Prime Minister that comes to power after him doesn't actually want or think that Palestinians are capable of having peace, doesn't want them to have peace, or like in the case of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu are actually aligned with the settler movement who wants to settle this land. Um, and then the Palestinians are supposed to handle all of the security coordination for Israel. So, for example, the Israeli military isn't actually supposed to have to go arrest a Palestinian who is part of an armed faction. They're supposed to be able to just call the Palestinian Authority and say, we would like you to uh, arrest this person and hand them over to us. And that's one of the main uh, kind of sticking points uh, uh, where they demand that as part of Oslo. So, by 99, it hasn't happened, right? And the number of settlements have actually grown. Um, and if you look here, so this is interesting, but if you look at all of these little bit darker blue, these are all settlements in the West Bank. Um, and the light blue is basically uh, Israeli uh, uh, like settlement jurisdiction. And so you can see that in the West Bank, um, we don't actually see that many areas where there's large swaths of Palestinian land. Um, and so in 2000, um, the Second Intifada breaks out. And the Second Intifada is a brutal uh, five-year conflict for Palestinians and Israelis. Um, uh, it's... People put different start dates on it, but many people argue that when Ariel Sharon visited uh, the Temple Mount, the uh, Al-Aqsa Al Mosque, that's the, the date at which many people peg it. Um, there are like different reasons for why he visited it, but it was seen as this incredibly offensive act. Um, uh, basically, riots break out in East Jerusalem. Um, 
they the first day it's mostly uh, non-lethal suppression it quickly becomes lethal um, and and like a third of the people killed are young people and so this escalates there's like incident after incident kind of like this that happened and uh, within about six months Palestinian armed factions have begun fighting at full force and um, one of the things that had happened under Oslo is the fighting had scaled way back, but they hadn't actually lost all of their weapons. They hadn't surrendered them. They hadn't turned them over. They hadn't been disarmed. And so there's still, there's still uh, Palestinian factions of even the ruling party, for example, that, ha that are armed. And they begin carrying out attacks both against settlers, against soldiers in the West Bank, and also the famous suicide bombings that happen inside Israel that happen at like cafes in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or on buses. Um, and in response to, you know, this kind of, as this escalates, uh, Israel becomes more aggressive. It stops being about shooting at protesters and it starts being about taking control of entire cities. And so one by one, they basically put cities under siege. Uh, they take Nablus completely. They destroy the center of Nablus. Um, it's basically largely destroyed in much of the conflict. They bulldoze about 40% of the city of Janin to take it. Um, and this becomes this kind of brutal, uh, protracted five-year conflict. And during much of this conflict, um, huge swaths of the West Bank are under curfew. So you could be under curfew for two weeks and be given six hours to get all of your groceries. And if you're found outside your home at any time, you'll be killed. So my organization that I worked with, the International Solidarity Movement, was founded in 2001. It was founded by um, an Israeli, an Israeli Jew uh, named Neta Golan, um, uh, a Palestinian with Israeli citizenship, um, Hawaita Araf, uh, her now husband, Adam Shapiro, who is from New York, um, and a couple of other Palestinians. And it grew pretty quickly, but they're like considered the founders. I mean, it kind of happened by accident. Uh, Netta had really admired the World Trade Organization protests in Seattle. They thought it was neat that the internet was used to organize. So they tried to kind of mimic this internet call. Um, and the first demonstration that I'm aware of is in the village kind of close to Bethlehem in the south. I don't even know if it's up here. Um, Beit Zahur. And Beit Zahur was under Bethlehem is right here. It's hard to read this, but that's that. So in Beit Zahur, like right outside Bethlehem, and they had been being, they were under curfew and they were being shelled by an Israeli military outpost that was down the road. Um, and they got a call from one of the contacts of hers, her friend, and they had this idea that they would march together, Israelis, Palestinians, and international citizens, and see what happened. <clears throat> so they start marching to this military base, and they're chanting in Hebrew. And the soldiers have no idea what to do. They run inside their barracks and they hide. And so they, they, they say, they get to this military office, they're like, what do we do now? We had never planned to get this far. So they kind of dance around, they raise a Palestinian flag where the Israeli flag was raised, and then they leave. Because they don't know what they were like marching for, because they never thought they'd get there. Um, and out of this, this basically huge uh, organization kind of starts um, kind of accidentally. So she like... Uh, a friend of hers puts a call out and says, well, there's this awesome group doing stuff uh, with, with Israelis, Palestinians, international uh, 
uh, activists, and uh, and so someone sends in twenty five thousand dollars, and then and then this famous uh, eco uh, activist named Starhawk shows up and is like and is like you have to run by consensus because that's the only way to achieve like a true revolution, and so it becomes this consensus led organization, which means at all meetings everyone has to agree to everything, um, and people just start showing up, and so she said what she thought was like a one off action, they might do another one here or there becomes people just arriving, 40 people being at a hostel in Jerusalem, being like, we're ready, we're ready, what are we doing next? And she's like, and so this group, they all start figuring out things to do. And so they start going to villages, and they and, and one of the one of the, the tenets of the organization is that it's Palestinian-led. And that doesn't mean that Palestinian can tell you whatever to do, right? What it means is that Palestinian leadership in the villages are the ones who get to decide if they want you in their action. So you don't go to a village and just show up and go, we're here. The, the leadership has to call the organization or a contact and say, we'd really like your help. We would like to break curfew. Um, and so what they found was if they were present, less than lethal means were used to suppress. So they could go to a village and you could march with the, the villagers to the grocery store. And it was less likely that everyone was just shot or shot at. Um, and they got a ton of news for two major things. Um, the first was um, the Israeli military entered Ramallah and they, uh, they put Yasser Arafat, who's the leader of the Palestinian Authority, leader of the PLO, Palestinian Liberation Organization, um, under siege. And they were going to just go in and, and take it. They were going to kill him, right? Um, because they knew if they killed him that they would kind of break the leadership, right, of this. Even if he wasn't directly in control of the paramilitary organizations, he was the kind of spiritual leader, the last spiritual leader that was, that was kind of alive and free. So um, 40 people, um, French, Spanish, and Israeli, they, they're like, well, we have to figure out what to do about this. And so... Uh, there's all the tanks surrounding this compound, and they just run past the tanks and run to the door and knock on the door. And they say, let us in. And so they all end up in the compound, in Mukata, for 40 days. And um, their presence, what they do is once they get in the compound, they call the French embassies, they call the Spanish embassies, they call the Israeli government officials, and they say, well, there are 12 Israelis here, there are 8 Spanish people, there are 10 French people. And this creates an international crisis, because if they go into this compound and they kill 40 uh, people that aren't Palestinian, it's going to be an international crisis. And so um, the French government gets involved. The president says, like, you can't, you can't, you can't kill that many people. Like, you just, you can't. Like, you can't do that. Um, Colin Powell actually visits the compound to try to negotiate uh, the, uh, the, like, peace, right? And at the end of the 40 days, the Israeli military agrees to withdraw from Ramallah. Um, Yasser Arafat later dies in 2005, but he gets to live for uh, three and a half more years. Um, uh, and, you know, it's really interesting because talking about it, there are a lot of different opinions on Yasser Arafat as a political figure and as an individual person. And it was really fascinating one time to sit with Netta and talk to her about this. And she was like, yeah, you know, it's not even like a personal attachment to a person. It's just that they represent something. And, like, you want to, like, fight for that, that idea, Right. Um, the other famous uh, thing that happens with the International Solidarity Movement is the Church of Nativity is under siege in Bethlehem, and a group of Palestinian armed fighters has taken refuge in the Church of Nativity, and the priests have agreed to take them in. 
So the Israeli military has the church and the nativity under siege, and they are shooting at it sometimes to try to take out people inside. And this is a huge deal, right? This is the church and the nativity, right? Um, and so the same thing. About 40 activists with food climb, go roof to roof through Bethlehem, climb down the side of a building, sneak into the church of nativity, and stay for, again, about 40 days and negotiate um, the peaceful exit of the fighters who were all later arrested, right? But the peaceful exit that they, that they can leave without being killed on the spot. Um, yeah, so, um, so yeah, that's the organization I joined. Um, and um, it's a, I thought it was a really neat organization. I met one of the founders and I met another member when I was at UT and I thought the work they were doing was really neat. Um, it is a nonviolent organization. So <clears throat> members of the ISM can't engage in any violence of any sort against uh, anybody, but particularly this is about Israelis, right? Um, and the way that really plays out on the day-to-day -day for us was that um, in, in Palestine, there are two terms used. There's popular resistance and armed, armed resistance. In the U.S., we, we talk about nonviolent and violent, right? But in Palestine, you'll hear popular and armed. And armed is, is obviously assumed that only a very small population can take part in it. It's actually with weapons, bombs, right? You're killing people. And then there's popular. And popular is the marches and the demonstrations. And throwing stones is a regular part of those demonstrations. But that's not really considered violent resistance. Um, but for you know, ISM, you, you can't throw any stones, even if, you, even if you're upset, right? You just can't take part in that. And the, and the kind of spiritual uh, position on it is that it's not really our, uh, that if, if someone wants to throw a stone, that's their decision. We aren't going to tell them not to. We don't want to do anything that it could incite anything to happen, especially to other people. So we just act as kind of a presence. We document, we can be kind of a human shield. Um, our presence is supposed to reduce the actual violence used. Um, and so I arrived in June of 2012. And this map is 2014, so it's pretty accurate. Um, and I had studied the conflict in Palestine before I got there. I studied Arabic at UT. I thought I knew what I was getting into. And as soon as you cross on the West Bank, you just can't miss how insane this is, right? I want you to imagine this. Now this... How, how easy it was for you to get there, like paper-wise? So you can only get into the West Bank through, through Israeli security control, right? So they have a couple crossings at the Jordan border, Jordanian border, and then, and then they control the airport, obviously, and then they have a southern crossing from Egypt, um, I flew in to Tel Aviv, um, and you can't talk about, um, it's like, it's kind of iffy, right? You could say, I'm Christian and I want to go to Bethlehem, and it's probably going to be okay. You could say, you could say, I'm a student and I'm studying at the University of Bethlehem. There's a half chance you get deported, and there's a half chance you get to stay. Um, you could, st you could say, you could say, like, I just want to party in Tel Aviv, and you're fine. If they believe you, you're fine, Right. Uh, but if you say, I want to see the situation in Palestine, you will, you will be put in a cell until your plane arrives, until you buy a flight to leave, and you will be deported from the state of Israel, and you'll be banned for 10 years. So, but it's interesting, because at the Jordanian border, obviously people who are crossing into the West Bank are more likely to stay in the West Bank, because they're crossing at that junction. 
they're not necessarily lighter there, but there's like a little bit more give. Um, it's kind of confusing, um, but people still get deported, like banned and sent back into Jordan all the time. Um, that includes Palestinians who have the paperwork to go into the West Bank. Um, but uh, but yeah, so you, so when I got there, I had a lot. I, like, I didn't exist on the internet, or basically didn't have a Facebook. I I uh, I just said I was backpacking through the world. I just graduated, and I was gonna have a good time, and then I was gonna go back home. And they were like, "Great, have a nice time." So I arrived. I went from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, where I met the organization, um, and then I went into the West Bank um, and did the training in Ramallah and. Um, and it was intense. The training was like, you know, I, I, I kind of, you know, I didn't really know what I was getting into, but the training was like, you know, it was all the way from like, it was all the way from like, what is it actually like? What's the occupation? Where, how does A, B, and C work? What percentage? A is 18, B is 22, and C, the vast majority, is 60%. Um, and then it would get into like de-arresting. Like, okay, so uh, imagine someone's being arrested. Everyone has to like dogpile on this person to stop them from being arrested. And like the two biggest people in the room are going to drive. So, so it was like this kind of uh, how to get involved uh, and, 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 and real discussions of the risk, right? Um, at the time I was there, two ISM members had been killed. Um, uh, one was bulldozed in the Gaza Strip. Her name's Rachel Corey. She's the most famous. She was, uh, there was a house demolition taking place in the Gaza Strip. She stood in front of the bulldozer and the soldier ran her over, backed up over, ran her over again. Uh, the other who didn't get as much press was named Tom Herndl. Uh, he saw a child. Snipers were, 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 were firing on some Palestinians who had broken curfew. And he saw a child standing in the middle of the street. So he ran and grabbed the child. And he was running with the child. And he was shot in the head. Uh, he was killed. Um, I think he was in a coma for two weeks and then died. Um, and then there were other cases of people being severely wounded. Someone was shot in the head with a non-lethal round very close. And they... They live in California, and they have permanent, um, permanent uh, brain damage. Um, they're disabled for life. And the woman that I met, who inspired me to go, had been shot in the wrist from about 10 feet away. And the, and the, 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 the rubber-coated steel bullet had shattered her wrist. And one of the only reasons she had it with her is because she, was, she got to leave with it because it was in her wrist when she left. And so she was actually able to show it at her talks because uh, they try to keep that, that stuff from leaving. Um, so uh, I got into it and I was like, well, this is obviously a bit risky, but, but I think the work they're doing is really neat. And I think it's, it's really important uh, for people to learn about, about what's actually the day-to-day -day life for a Palestinian might be like. So I went to the training and I went, the first place I went was the southern city of Hebron. And it is right here. Oh yeah, the mass. Okay. So there it is right there. Hebron is one of the more kind of, traumatic and, 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 and really dire examples of the settlement movement and the current situation in uh, the West Bank. So Hebron is one of the largest Palestinian cities. That's about 200,000 people. It is an industrial city. Um, and this black line right here is the division between what's called Area 1 and Area H1 and H2. Um, a group of about 600 settlers decided, okay, uh, Abraham's Mosque is here. I should get that out of the way. So Abraham's Mosque is here and also Agra uh, Abraham's tomb. So for, for uh, devout uh, Orthodox Jews, it's a very important uh, site. And also for, Palestine, for Muslims, 
and Christians, right? It's, it's important, right? Mostly Muslims, but also Christians find it important. So they decided that they wanted um, to, to live in this city. So with Israeli military help, they actually started settling inside a Palestinian city. And that's actually the only real case where they're literally inside of a city. And so this force of about 600 people, um, there's larger settlements right outside, but inside about 600 settlers is guarded by 6,000 soldiers. Um, and so what they've done over the years is they've taken a little bit more of this, of this, this neighborhood. Um, it's called uh, Tel Rumeda. And this is out of a friend's fence. And you can see there's this street right here, and there's these water towers, and this is a settlement. But all of this is a Palestinian city. Um, and so um, they lived there, and they lived there with, with protection, um, but Palestinians were still free to move about in the H2 area of Hebron until 1994. Um, and Baruch Goldstein went inside the Abraham Mosque during prayer, and started shooting people with an assault rifle. He was far. He was part of a, of a of a really far right Israeli fringe movement um, that's like now not so fringe, um, but was more fringe at the time. Um, and uh, he killed, I think, twenty nine Palestinians, and they and then injured like almost a hundred. So as a result of that massacre, Palestinians in Hebron rioted. So what the Israeli military decided was that they would build checkpoints that would totally seal off this section of the city, and people who still lived there would be allowed to continue to live there, um, but no Palestinian cars would be allowed to drive in it. They closed um, basically all of the commercial shops that were there in the old city, which was the most important kind of shopping area of the city. A little bit of it is left that's outside, that's outside of the H2 area, that's still in H1. But um, these are all shuttered shops. Um, and most of the Palestinians who lived on the streets that have been totally forbidden to Palestinian foot traffic, um, there are a couple of residents that still live there, so they're technically allowed to walk to their home. But, but what, what has happened over the years is many of them have left um, during the, from the harassment. Um, and the settler movement in Hebron is very aggressive. Um, so one of the things we did was we walked children to school because the school in Hebron, in this area, is, is, is like 30 feet from the street that's forbidden uh, to Palestinian foot traffic. And the settlement, one of the first settlements, is right there. And so as children walk to school, other uh, uh, settler children or, or adults will throw stones at them. And so one of the things we did is we walked them to school. <clears throat> it's kind of a protective uh, measure. Um, the other thing is that every time a Palestinian wants to leave or enter, they have to go through a checkpoint, which means a metal detector. Um, and so one of the things that, one of the ways this plays out is uh, if the soldier at the time is uh, not particularly in a good mood or thinks that you've been rude or disrespectful, you can be held for hours, you can be held for 10 hours, uh, you know, 50 meters or 100 meters from your home. Um, there are watchtowers that dot this neighborhood. Um, there are really extreme examples of, like there's a house 
where the Israeli soldiers decided that they needed it as a watchtower. So they have a 24-hour presence on someone's roof. And so the people live in the house immediately below it. And the Israeli military will search the house every day to try to convince them to leave. Um, when I was there, like an 18-year-old settler uh, driving hit a 10-year-old Palestinian kid on a bicycle with their car um, and, like, hit this kid, uh, like, knocked them off the road, severely injured them. And uh, when the Israeli police asked him if he'd done it, he just laughed. And they said, okay, you can go on your way. So um, this was my first encounter with the occupation. It is one of the most kind of extreme day-to-day -day examples of what the occupation is actually like for Palestinians and for Israelis. Um, and, and, and to give a more accurate description of settlers, there are almost 600,000 settlers in the West Bank, right? Think about that, right? That's a huge population. Um, many of them are not ideologically extreme, actually. There are very extreme ideological settlers who believe um, that, 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 that biblical Israel is theirs and only theirs and everyone else must leave or die. Um, there are... There are a lot of, of, of immigrant settlers who arrive from Eastern Europe, incredibly poor. They're treated terribly in their home countries. They're, they come from very anti-Semitic countries. They arrive, and there are two choices. They can be incredibly poor and try to live in Tel Aviv and try to get a job and have a terrible time adapting, or the Israeli government will actually pay them to move to the West Bank. And private organizations will give them a home and a gun, and money, and help them find work if they go and settle the West Bank. So a lot of them are actually not that ideologically extreme. They're just victims of their own circumstances that are then put. So there's a famous village named Sterot, which is borders Gaza. And it's one of the most famous cases, right? They'll talk about the rockets being fired from Gaza. And they're, and they're usually fired at Sterot because it just borders Gaza, right? But it's really interesting because if you look at who makes up the village of Stero, it's poor European, mostly European and other nation and, and like Eritrean and stuff, Jewish immigrants, who in a weird way have been sent to the front lines, much like the United States used poor immigrants to take the West, right? It's, it, it's eerily similar if you go to these places, right? Um, and so uh, the settlers of Hebron are kind of special in their, I mean, not special in that there's no other settlers like them, but their vitriol is extreme. They choose to live in an area of constant 24-hour conflict where they believe they are in danger um, uh, because they believe it's their destiny. So anyway, so I get to Hebron, I get really sick. Uh, I miss like the first five days of things that group does. I'm like, what are we doing? I'm really sick, I wanna go home. I start getting better, and they're like, tomorrow, we're gonna to do an action. Um, and so, the day, the, the, the day after I got better, we did our first action, which was an attempt for, if you'll remember, I said that Palestinians are not allowed to walk on one of the main streets. So a group of Palestinians had decided that as a protest action, they would dress up women mostly international and Israeli, but some Palestinian women in traditional Palestinian garbs called the Fog, and then they would march down the street, Shahada Street, Martyr Street. Um, so they would march down the street and protest. So our job was to, like my specific 
role was to film it, take pictures. I guess we didn't really, I was new enough. And unfortunately, at the time, the communication was poor enough that I actually wasn't really sure what I was supposed to do. I just knew that I was going to go walk down the street and take some pictures, and I didn't know how I was going to go. But it went absolutely haywire. Um, so this, sorry, this is a wall in, this is the Jewish Defense League, and this is a wall in the Palestinian uh, section of Hebron. So as soon as the protest starts, uh, everything just goes haywire. Um, soldiers get involved. Settlers come running and attacking everybody. Uh, a couple of people are like kind of aggressively arrested. And so these are just pictures from that demonstration. Um, this is uh, uh, Dan, a friend of mine. This is him being slammed into a fence and arrested by a soldier. This is the women being basically forced out. So what ended up happening is they were walking down the street. Um, something set the whole thing off. Something set the soldiers, or maybe it was the settlers running up and screaming. But the soldiers just decide that everyone's off the street. And, um, and so these are just a series of photos of everyone being forcefully removed about 60 or 70 meters down a street and shoved through a checkpoint. And you can see the number, right? And this is in, se this is in seconds, right? This is in, this is in like, this whole thing happens in a couple minutes. And in 30 seconds, there are a dozen or two dozen soldiers. These are settlers with their cameras. They document from their side as well. And these are the women. Um, and uh, and uh, so this is outside the area where they raided a woman's home. Um, but yeah, so you can just kind of see this like intense uh, uh, situation. And, and so we're all shoved out of this checkpoint. A few people are arrested. Um, and I'm like, this is like my second experience with anything in the West Bank. And I'm like, this is, this place, this is insane. Um, so I continued to live there for about three more weeks. Um, you know, no more actions exactly this happened. Uh, but a good example of like a regular happening is on, uh, on Saturday. Um, the settlers like to do what's called the Settlers March. And the Israeli military uh, walks them through the Palestinian part of the city that's not technically under Israeli, technically under Israeli military control. So they leave <coughs> through the checkpoint, they enter what is H1, which is supposed to be total Palestinian, civil and military control, right, or civil and, and, and security control. <clears throat> and they walk through the old shopping center, the old part of the city, and they chant things like, you know, die Arabs, die Arabs, die Arabs. They bang on the shops. They'll go to people's shop tables and throw things over. And they're guarded by like 10, 20, 30, 40 shoulders. And then on the rooftops, they've posted soldiers all the way along the way. Um, and so this is called the Settlers Tour, and it happens every Saturday. They do it for themselves. They also do it for tourists uh, who come in. So they want to show off to tourists that like they have control. And so groups of, uh, groups of uh, Jewish tourists who are in support of the settler movement will be shown their might. Um, and, uh, and so it's pretty extreme and it's a weekly happening. Um, and that was really crazy to watch. Uh, you know, and they can kind of do whatever they want. They'll, someone will be outside their shop and they'll spit in their face or something. And if that person reacts, they'll be arrested. One of the really interesting, uh, ways in which the occupation is maintained and, and not dealt with is that the Israeli military is there to protect, uh, Jewish Israelis specifically in the West Bank but they aren't allowed to do anything about their behavior. 
So like a U.S. soldier is not allowed to police our behavior because we're American citizens and we're not foreign, right? So we can't really be controlled generally without martial law by our military. The same kind of system exists. So only Israeli police are allowed to punish, arrest, charge settlers. Um, and they are really complicit, but also cleverly absent at almost all of these junctions. Um, and I'll tell a story a little bit later that's kind of the most extreme example I watched of this happen personally. But anyway, so I live in Hebron for a month, and then I moved to the north. Uh, and I moved to the city of Nablus. Nablus is very different. Nablus is this kind of very proud, uh, I mean, not that Hebron is not, but this incredibly proud city, right? Um, it's like this, like almost like if you could imagine kind of like an aristocratic air of a city, right? It's this huge history, right? It's like this beautiful old city that dates back to before the Romans invaded in 41 AD. And it's like a labyrinthian city. Um, and uh, so the way they interact with the occupation is quite different. Nablus is, um, Nablus is under its own security control. It has a large population, over 200,000. And it's surrounded by all of these villages. But one of the ways that Nablus is uh, punished is that many of the people who live in these villages around have to drive through checkpoints to get into Nablus. And so during the Antifada, whenever there's tensions, the checkpoints are just closed. And so one of the ways that I experienced this uh, watching Palestinians is that during the bad years, Palestinians might take an extra two years to graduate college. They might not get to go to college because they can't get to study. They can't go to Nablus to study. Um, and and other, otherwise, one of the big things about Nablus is you can see how many settlements there are around the villages. One of the interesting things about the settlements is the, the dark blue is the actual settlement, right? The light blue is Israel's assumption of civil control. But what they don't, you can't show on a map is the fact that out of every settlement, there's like a mile radius in which the settlers will attack Palestinians. So one of the ways that the Palestinian economy has been brutally affected is that the majority of Palestinians used to live off of farming. They, they harvested olives or they did other kinds of farming to survive. And most of their olive trees aren't in their village. They're in the land surrounding the village. And so Palestinians have lost access to like something like 70 or 75% of their olive trees. Because um, there's two ways this works. One, unofficially, they have, officially they have full access. But if they go to their land, the military will either kick them off or settlers will come and attack them. And the military always comes with the settlers. Sometimes the settlers beat the military by like 20 minutes, but the military always follows. And their job is to protect the settlers. So they either arrest or force the Palestinians to leave so it's less controversial. The other way this has been really difficult for Palestinian farmers is that they have to request access to their olive trees through an organization that coordinates access. And obviously, if you can imagine farming of any sort, you might think that if you had a garden, you would need to tend to it. So one of the unfortunate ways this plays out. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. Thank you. One of the unfortunate ways this plays out is they may only get one day of access a year. So they're told to harvest all of their olives in one day. They're told to do all of the tending for the land in one day, which you can't tend and harvest. And so their trees die or they're unmaintained. They don't grow right. Or imagine trying to harvest 
$200 trees by hand because Palestinians don't have the, the economy to support massive farming. They still harvest them by hand. So imagine trying to harvest that many olives, 100 trees in one day with three or four people. So one of the things we did is during olive harvest season, we would coordinate with villages for the people that were at the greatest risk of being attacked, trying to harvest their olives, and we would go and we would also actively help them harvest. So we would try to speed up their harvest so that they continue to feed their families. Um, so yeah, so I did that. Um, I went to protests around. Uh, there are several demonstrations that happen every Friday in the West Bank. Um, they, they happen for different reasons. Um, this red line is the barrier wall. This is the, this is the uh, security wall for the state of Israel. And if you look at the purple, these are approved paths for the line, right? So this is this green right here that you can barely see. This is the official line of demarcation between the West Bank and Israel. This is the barrier wall. And they build around settlements, they build around, it cuts people off from access to their, to their neighbors, to their family members. Um, they seize more and more land with it. And so many villages have decided to demonstrate against the wall. Uh, the most famous being uh, village Nailin and Bilain. Bilain had a documentary made about it called Five Broken Cameras. I recommend you watch it. It's really eerie, right? It's this, this kind of crushing story of this wall that's continuing to progress and how it affects um, these, these villagers. Um, there are other ones. Uh, let me go up to, okay, so here we are in Nablus. Let me see if I can read this on the screen. I believe this is, uh, let's see. Yeah, this is Kufra Kodum, I believe. This is the village that I protested in most Fridays. It was close to where I was. Oh no, what did I do? Uh, anyway, um, it's this village. I'll show you the pictures and then I'll show you the, what happened to them. Um, let me see. I want to ask a question. So when you take a picture like that, um, of the of the Israeli armed forces, how do they react, or like how do they treat you? Um, it can, you know, it can really depend on the day, right? It can be like a they just stand there and they kind of look at me <coughs> annoyed. It can be like, oh, take another picture, fuck you, you know. Um, or it can be like a reaction, like I'm going to arrest you, get the camera out of my face. They can hit the camera. Um, so it just depended on the day and the soldier, right? And 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 to and to be to be like honest about the soldiers, many of them are very young. I mean, you can see this guy doesn't even look like he can shave, um, right? And so my experience with soldiers was interesting in that they all do exactly what they're told, right? That's what a soldier is, right? So if his commander says kill everyone that's standing in front of us, they will do that. But many of them have obvious emotions about what's happening. So it wasn't once, it was probably like six or eight times that I watched a soldier cry as he was doing something to somebody, right? So they're like hitting someone, pushing someone back, arresting an 85-year-old man, and they're actively crying while they're doing it. Now, that doesn't usually come out as like later they're like, oh, I can't believe I did. They usually kind of put, they're told to like tough up. They'll be grabbed by their commander and yelled at for crying. Um, so a lot of the soldiers really have really strong emotional reactions to what they're doing, right? Because a lot of it's so obvious. I think the news likes to share this version of like evil Palestinian militants shooting rockets and soldiers, and it's like this kind of equal case, right? 
But the day-to-day for Palestinians, and the reason the West Bank is not mentioned in the news, is because you can't go to the West Bank without seeing that the actual day-to-day for a Palestinian is that their movements are severely restricted, their access to their own liberty through economy is severely restricted, that settlers are moved into an area that is supposed to be tragically dangerous for them, right? Which kind of undoes the entire narrative of a desire for peace and undoes the entire narrative that they are in real danger, right? Because what I don't do personally is when I think I might be mugged, I don't go sit next to the person I think might mug me, right? Or I don't, uh, yeah. So, and that's what's happening day to day in the West Bank. Um, so, uh, anyway, let's see this map loaded, and then I'll show you some pictures from Kufa Kadu. It's decided to be difficult. Um, here we go. Okay. So I won't scroll into the map because it might disappear forever. I may not even load. But anyway, basically the way it works is um, the uh, uh, basically imagine this is Nablus and this is Kufa Kadum. Uh, it's not exactly here, but there's no cities. So there's a straight road that goes straight to Nablus. It's like a 15-minute drive. But there's a settlement here. This is actually a decent example because there is actually a settlement in the middle. And the settlers have decided they don't want Palestinians driving near the settlement. So the road is closed. So Kufr Kadum travels here. They go here. So it's a 35-minute drive to the city, their large city neighbor that they should be able to get to in 10 minutes. So every week they protest to open the road. So they march down the street. They throw stones, they build, um, and the military shows up without fail. And this is what the protests look like. So these are young men, almost exclusively young men, who will be involved in the protest. Um, uh, and older men stay back, but they're there. This is the military. This is the bulldozer. Behind this is a, is a jeep full of soldiers. And they are holding a variety of uh, munitions, uh, tear gas, rubber-coated steel bullets. Um, they have real weapons, obviously, as well. Um, and they basically suppress the protests every week. Um, there are different tools used. Palestinians burn piles of tires every week. Um, they do it for a couple reasons. One, it's hard to drive a Jeep into a village if they have to drive over a bunch of piles of burning tires. Um, uh, two, uh, the smoke often blows towards the settlement, and they think that's funny. Um, uh, and you can see this is a child, right? So uh, participation in the protests is not limited to adults. Um, for many men, young men, it seems like the only way that a lot of them can really let off their frustration and their anger, so they're, they're the, the most active. Um, but, you know, you can't find a Palestinian in the West Bank village like Kufadun who hasn't been personally, tragically affected by the occupation. Um, uh, their brother's been arrested or killed. Um, maybe their other brother's been arrested. Their dad was probably arrested. They were likely arrested. And the way the Israeli military punishes Palestinian uh, villages that do anything is they come in the middle of the night and they arrest the children. And so one of the really kind of nefarious aspects of the occupation is that, is that in certain villages, every child has been to prison. And under Israeli military uh, tribunal control, there is not a requirement of a prison length term. They can extend it at six month intervals indefinitely. Uh, it's called administrative detention. And you are not allowed to face your accuser. 
So the evidence is presented in private to the judge. So there's no way to rebut the evidence. So this can go on for four or five or six years. And there are cases of it happening where someone was part of a Palestinian fighting faction. They did their term. They got out. They were no longer fighters. But the Israeli military would arrest them and, it, and indefinitely extend them. So they would go on hunger strike is the only way to get out of prison. Because the Israeli military didn't like the, or the Israeli government didn't like the press of this person that's probably going to die in prison. Um, but that's a really kind of dark aspect. Um, there's a case happening in Palestine now where uh, I think four boys or five boys from a village named Haras, a woman crashed her car at one of the checkpoints by a settlement. She claims stones were thrown at her, right? We really don't actually know if stones were thrown, but five boys were arrested. Did they throw the stones? Like there's no, there's no reason to believe there's actually proof they threw them. There's no reason to believe that they're the right boys. If stones were thrown, there's like no reason to believe that she didn't just crash her car and blame it on a settler, right? That is very uh, normal too. If you think back about like uh, uh, post-Civil War American society, how black people were blamed for all kinds of things and used as like scapegoats. So it's not to say that they didn't throw the stones, right? But there's no justice in these courts. There doesn't need to be. But they're looking at like 25 years each and their children. Right. Because I think uh, the driver of the car she hit was killed. Right. So they'll be punished for murder, basically. Right. Um, so um, anyway, so this is Kufar Kadum. And um, and um, my presentation has gone on longer than I thought it would. But I wanted to just kind of uh, sum up so we can talk for a little bit because I have a lot more pictures and I'm happy to share them with anyone that wants to see them later. Um, but I basically guess, like, to give a, a brief synopsis of what I saw um, there is that my experience with the occupation of the West Bank was one of a movement that was basically... So you have the Israeli population, right? And they have differing political opinions. That's not, that's not a pretend thing. But the number of Israelis who believe that they're that they don't have a right to have Palestinian land is actually not very high, right? Um, uh, can you repeat that? So the number of Israelis who, who don't believe in, uh, in, 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 in what you could really call because a Jewish state for Jewish people with Jewish superiority in law, right? The number of people who do not believe in that is very small, right? Because there's a, a, another argument that's used around the world is that Palestinian citizens of Israel, because there are many, there are 20% of the population, have equal rights. Well, that's patently false. 94% of the land in all of Israel is owned by the, is controlled by the Jewish National Fund, and if you are not Jewish, you cannot own any of it. Um, if you put on a play at a theater and you mention the Nakba, if you mention the word or the idea of the expulsion of 700,000 <coughs> Palestinians for the creation state of Israel, all state funding will be pulled from that theater. It cannot receive any state funding if it, if it talks about what happened. And, and what I'm talking about here is, what is interesting, I think, about what I'm talking about, is I'm not quoting Palestinians. I'm, when I say 700,000 were expelled, I'm, I'm actually quoting an Israeli historian who is Jewish and a Zionist. And his name is Benny Morris, and he argues that the state of Israel always required the idea of transfer, the transfer of populations. And what that's, what that's actually called in human rights law is ethnic cleansing. That's what we call the murder or transfer of a population. Um, and so 
Um, I think one of the things I just experienced there was that this is a huge structure, right? You have the day-to-day -day actions of individuals and kind of like, you know, kind of like colonial systems prior, kind of like Jim Crow, you have an entire super legal structure that's in place to make sure it keeps happening, to make sure settlers keep going into the West Bank, to make sure more populations are transferred, to make sure Palestinians can't get justice in court. And so that just continues and continues and continues. And it's, and it's, and, and, and so, um, and so, um, one of the things that I've, I've been a big supporter of, other than working with organizations that do good work in the West Bank, is a movement that was created in 2005 called the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement. And it is a call to the international community to engage in pressuring their governments to boycott uh, uh, Israeli institutions, divest from Israeli companies that benefit from the occupation, and sanction the state of Israel until it complies with international rights. And they have basically three main demands. Um, that is the ending the occupation and colonization of all Arab lands and dismantling the wall. Right, the big wall I showed you that snakes through, snakes through the West Bank. Uh, recognizing the fundamental rights of the Arab Palestinian citizens of Israel to full equality would be this is their second demand. And the third is respecting, protecting, and promoting the rights of Palestinian refugees to return to their homes and properties as stipulated in the United Nations Resolution 194 that says that they have the right to go home. Um, and I think this is a big catch, right? The state of Israel is terrified that if Palestinians return, they would become the minority. That's one of their big kind of existential fears. The idea that they would actually get to go to their exact homes, I don't think anyone actually, even the BDS movement really believes that that would ever be the case. But those are the three things they demand. And one of the things I like about the, the movement is it's one, totally nonviolent. It's just civil pressure. But it's obviously terrifying to the state of Israel because the US government and the state governments all over the country have actually passed laws to prevent you from being able to boycott. So famous case that's happening right now in Texas is a school teacher in the Pflugerville ISD was, 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 was told she had to sign a pledge not to boycott the state of Israel in order to teach in Pflugerville ISD. And when she refused to sign it, she was fired. So what has happened as a result of this movement, and it's actually gained huge traction internationally, um, is that, uh, is that um, there is a ton of money and effort being poured into kind of saying that this movement is this awful movement that seeks to destroy Israel. Um, the best way I've heard it described is Israeli historian Elon Pape, when asked about what peace would look like, he said, he said, listen, if I could go home to Germany tomorrow and solve this, I would. But we all know that's not going to happen. And we all know that's not true. No one who moved yesterday from Russia is going home. No one who moved 60 years ago from Germany is going home. We're all there. We all live there. And we all have to make peace. And the point of the boycott, divestment, and sanction movement is not for you to decide what peace looks like. It's for you to create a table at which Palestinians and Israelis can sit equally and decide what their future looks like. We get to decide those things. And there are thousands of questions we have to answer. You don't need to answer any of them for us. We just need you to create the environment for us to answer them. And so that's, that's uh, yeah, uh, I guess, any questions? Do you think we're moving in the right direction towards peace or towards <coughs> something else? That's a, 
That's an interesting question. I mean, the day-to-day in Palestine just gets worse, right? Um, currently in the West Bank, 90% of, or in, the, in Gaza Strip, 90% of all water is undrinkable. Children are dying from drinking water. Um, it is really becoming, like, the degree of suffering that is happening in Gaza right now is, 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 is truly, it's truly horrifying, right? Um, there's no power for much of the day. Uh, they, like I said, they don't have food, there's no work, there's no economy, there's no water. There's the argument that's made that 2 million people live in an open-air prison, right? Because they can't leave, they can't do anything about it. Um, in the West Bank, more land is seized every single day by the settler movement. But interestingly enough, many people who fought for this for a long time see a lot of progress. In 2005 and six, when I first got involved, if you spoke about Palestine, you were called a terrorist sympathizer and a terrorist. Now, um, the opposite is happening, not the opposite, but something is happening where uh, kind of ardent supporters of Israel are getting a lot shyer um, because of a couple of things. One, the, the Gaza Strip invasion in 2008-9 and subsequent events kind of gave a really bad reputation started hurting the Israeli reputation uh, to uh, a large a large and growing number of younger American Jews do not support the occupation. So that's actually changing at an alarming rate. Um, uh, but it's also, uh, you know, and so there's this idea that slowly things are changing on the ground in the United States and those ground swells will rise up and they'll enter the Congress. But if you look at what happened like with Elon Omar, she made some remarks. Um, she made some really, she, she chose some poor words. Like she, 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 uh, I don't, I don't know her. I don't know what her intent was. You really shouldn't play in anti-Semitic tropes at all. Like it's just, a, you know, like, like that. Oh, sorry. She's a, she's a congressperson from Michigan. Okay. She's Muslim. And she made a statement about APAC, which is the, um, uh, American Israeli, uh, oh God, stand for, um, Political Action Committee, right? Their job is to lobby the U.S. government to support Israel. They're incredibly powerful. Every president is running for president, except every every presidential hopeful has like gone and spoken at the conference for like a couple decades now. Um, you you want their money, you want their support, right? Um, and everyone kind of caters to them. And she made a comment about how um, they had a lot of power. They were trying to influence the U.S. government, and she said something like, "It's all about the Benjamins, baby." Um, and so she was attacked for being. Um, anti-Semitic, but she was actually acted accurately describing what APAC's intention is. They openly state that their intention is to lobby the U.S. government for Israel. Um, she chose some power poor words, but the interesting part is watching the Democratic Party turn and immediately kind of devour her. Like almost the entire Democratic Party, they tried to put a resolution on the floor that was against anti-Semitism. They actually were thinking about mentioning her by name in a, in a, in a congressional resolution. Um, they added something about anti-Islam, uh, about being anti-Islam uh, being dangerous too. So it had kind of a bright end. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think things are slowly shifting. The day-to-day is, is really awful, um, but there's some hope on the horizon. And one of the interesting things that talked about is there was this idea forever of two or one states. Um, slowly people are moving more and more, not, as, not Israelis, uh, are moving more to the idea that one state is the only possible solution because there are 600,000 settlers in the West Bank and you don't move 600,000 people back across a, a you know, magical line, right? Um, but 
you know, I think it's 20, maybe 30 years or whatever out, but it's, it, it, it'll have to happen eventually. Um, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that I, I thought years ago was that, is that if, 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 if Israel has been found, had been founded in 1810 or 1760, they would have killed everyone. We would be talking about it like we talk about Americans and our indigenous populations that now live on reservations, right? And have like small enclaves, right? And have been, and have been totally destabilized and brutally conquered, right? We would, we would, that's the way we talk about indigenous populations around the world, right? They were there, someone arrived, they were weak, they lost. Um, and I think unfortunately for Zionism as a movement, they were like a century late or two centuries late, right? In the sense of like, unfortunately, as far as they, they did it at a time in which third, the third world was throwing off its colonial powers and paying attention to this stuff. So they couldn't get away with what every, everyone else who wanted to colony or wanted to set to colonize a place did. So they're under a, a, a lens, right, that didn't exist 150 or 200 years ago. Um, and I think also saying that says that Israel isn't special, right? I think that there's this idea sometimes that does get played into that's anti-Semitic, that Israel is this really alarmingly special and awful nation. What happens in Israel is disgusting. But, but like, it's happened hundreds of times elsewhere. And we actually happen to be in a century where we don't think that's okay. And there are structures in place to stop it. So that's like a really remarkable uh, thing. You have to keep in mind how much people are suffering day to day. But that's a remarkable thing to, to happen, right? Um, because there are small amounts of peoples that live in the, what is now the United States of America that are left. And many of them are gone. I mean, totally gone. Um, and so uh, I think that Palestinians have also held on to their national identity they never had one. They never had a nation. But they've held on to this idea of a national aspiration very, very uh, tightly. Uh, and it's been kind of remarkable that they refuse to seed this idea. And so I think their day will come. I don't, you know, will it ever look totally just? That's a whole other question. But I think eventually um, Israel will actually work itself into a place where it actually can't get out. And I think that they'll hopefully eventually be required to give citizenship to everybody because they've mixed the populations too much and now it's <coughs> their fault, right? Like they can't blame Palestinians for being required to adapt, adopt everyone as one nation. And I think that the way I experience Palestinians talking about it, is they're very proud, but most of them, it's not like they sit around and say, they call it Palestine, but if, it, if a peace deal was brokered tomorrow that offered them the right to travel, that their kids could have jobs, that their kids could move out of the country or even leave the country without being stripped of their IDs if they lived in Jerusalem, that they could have dignity, right? And they could see their see their extended family who they can't go or see. I don't know if they would even care what it was called, right? I think it would be more like, oh my God, it's over. I can get in my car and go to the sea. I haven't seen the sea in 30 years or I haven't seen the sea in 20 years. Um, and so, yeah. to know more about the opinion of Israeli Jews in the place, I mean, in like Jerusalem, say, is it, is it completely a given that someone running for office has to be supportive of this um, settlement, or is it, are there large fights about that? Mm. So Max Blumenthal is an author from the U.S. His dad was a, um, uh, an advisor to Bill Clinton, and he's written a lot about it, and he actually went... Um, he did some, he did like a famous video where he went to Israel on the eve of Obama's election 
and had all of these kind of drunken frat boy equivalents of what we have here, but in but in Israel, calling Obama the N word and stuff like that. And so he got famous largely off that video. But he actually um, he argued that one of the scariest things about Israel and polling actually shows this that young Israelis are more racist than their parents. Um, so there was like a famous poll of like 18 to 25 year olds and something like 88% of them said they never wanted to be in a classroom with an Arab. Um, and to really think about that statement, one would also have to acknowledge that Jews in Israel came from Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt. They came from, they were within Palestine, right? They were within Israel. They're Arab. Like there are, there are European Jews, there are Jews from all over the world, there are Eritrean Jews, but there are also Arab Jews. And there's, there's such an interesting dynamic there that they don't call them Palestinians, they don't call them Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, they don't call them Muslims or Christians, they call them Arabs. All of them. Everyone who's not a Jew is an Arab. But you can also be Jewish and Arab. So it's like this really uh, interesting identity issue uh, that comes up. Um, it's a very othering thing, right? They also very careful not to acknowledge that there are Christians because that might acknowledge that there's a group that's not universally hated by the West there. Um, uh, but yeah, um, so yeah, I think that generally they, it looks like they are getting more uh, uh, racist. Uh, it looks like they are getting generally more hard-headed about uh, and there's like a growing siege mentality within Israel that the world wants to destroy them because of the boycott campaign, right? Uh, because uh, politicians have, have been like afraid maybe to travel because they might be arrested for war crimes for going into Gaza or whatever. So there's, so there's this, there's a siege mentality. And so there's this huge effort to do good PR outside. And then there's this in idea inside, I think, that's growing that like the world's against them. Um, and, I don't, and I think that politicians really love that, right? They love playing that up. Right? There's an argument that every time Netanyahu needs to get a, a, a elected again, there's suddenly another Gaza invasion. Right, like There's actually this belief that Palestinians are used as a, like a bargaining tool to consolidate power. And if you think about who Netanyahu is an individual, he's like, he's like Trump's, Trump's – they love each other. They're both strongmen, right? They're both corrupt strongmen. Um, and so um, politicians, I think – especially from the settler parties and the right parties that have been getting more and more right, have used this Palestinian question to create unity. Uh, and one of the results of that is more anti-Palestinian uh, sentiment. Um, yeah. So it, that's, that's a really depressing uh, uh, aspect of it. Yes. Um, so, um, so I feel like the prospects for peace in, in Israel outside are sort of influenced by political or cultural dimensions in the wider Arab world as well. And so I was wondering if you could comment on that. Sorry, could you read political cultural developments in what? In, in the wider Arab world, right? So. Yeah. So the I mean, Arab. For example, the you know the Israeli Israeli Jews feel there. I mean, they're kind of. They can feel that they are surrounded by the, all these Arab countries. Yeah. There's like a lot more Arabs, and if they're all implacably hostile to Israel, then you know, that is also a contradiction. Well, so this is an interesting. I mean, like, I can only speak to my experience there. Um, you know, it's kind of odd because there's two sides of it, right? There's the, I, there is the idea, right, that like Egyptians are incredibly anti Semitic. 
I mean, it's it's like it's even kind of alarming, right? Because Palestinians are are maybe a fraction as anti-Semitic as like the average Egyptian citizen that you ask about Jews, right? Um, uh, Egyptians became so anti-Semitic that Jews stopped calling themselves Jews and all hid who didn't leave, right? They started saying they were Muslim and Christian, right? Um, so it's very interesting, right? But then in Palestine, you can ask someone what they think, and they're like, oh, I understand there's a difference between a Zionist and a Jew. Jews are fine. They're part of the book, right? Now, now that's not what everyone's going to say, but that's what a, lot, a large percent of people are going to say. And then you can go to Lebanon, right? And there's this idea that they're surrounded by, um, that Israel's surrounded, but Lebanon spent an incredible amount of money rebuilding a synagogue. In Beirut. There's literally 40 Jewish families left in Lebanon. And they spent millions of state dollars rebuilding a synagogue. And, they, and, 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 and the head of Hezbollah himself said, we love our Jews. They're part of us. We must always protect them. And so there's like two narratives happening, right? There's like, there's like this really interesting kind of way this plays out. And that, and that aggressions against the state of Israel are seen as hating Israelis and wanting them all dead. Whereas a lot of Arabs see this nation as this nation that's been poking it in the eye for 70 years. Because Israel flies over at Lebanese airspace every single day. Like, can you imagine if the Mexican government decided to fly over American airspace with military aircraft every day? Um, and so, so for Lebanese people, they're like, the state is like this terrorist nation that's to our south that's taken part of our land, that makes military incursions on a weekly basis, that's invaded us multiple times, Right. And that, and that flies over our airspace every day to show us that we're weak. And then in Syria, right, there's, they seized the Golan Heights. And they said, well, it's for security. So Syria's beef is this Golan Heights thing. And Jordan is actually gets along fine with Israel. They do a lot of security coordination. Um, you know, and then there's a lot of, and then there's a lot of pounding uh, on podiums and rhetoric out of, like, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia sells weapons to the state of Israel, right? Um, and they talk a harsh game to their populations. And so I think a lot of it is this really interesting politicking where, where the same thing is like politicians in Arab nations use Israel, right, to, 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 to not look at what they're actually doing to their own populations or their neighbors that are Arab. That, or, like, or, like, or like, you know, uh, uh, Syria talks a really big game. Lebanon talks a really big game, right? But they've never given any rights to any of their Palestinian refugees, right? So they treated the Palestinians like... So it's kind of an interesting thing where I think like generally in the wider scheme, right, if peace was agreed upon, right, if Palestinians got to leave Lebanon, they got to leave Syria, right, they got to leave Jordan, those countries would be ecstatic, right? They would be like, we finally got rid of these, these people that we've never really wanted, and we've always kind of talked of as this kind of like group that we really don't like here. Um, and, uh, and then Saudi Arabia would even be able to openly trade arms with Israel instead of having to do it on the sly. You know, like this. So I think um, I think that even the Egyptian government, the Egyptian government made peace with Israel and does security coordination for Israel in its own country. But they tell their people that Israel is this awful, like, monster. That's kind of my point, right? Because, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I mean, because what I'm saying is that, you know, I mean, it's true that the Saudi Arabian government is, like, happy to sell the arms to Israel. And, and, no. But, and, and, you know, the Egyptians are cooperating. But, I mean, that's the security apparatus of the, you know, but the people are kind of hostile, right? And so yeah. that, that creates kind of an obstacle to peace as well. Yeah. And I feel that, you know, yeah, that I don't know, I'm, you know. Where does it come just... from that the Arabic ident identification is so fractured and versus the 
the Jewish that is so pro-nation. You know, the Arabs don't have that unity feeling. So there were attempts, but I mean, you also have to think about, like, this is a huge pieces of land. I mean, these are giant. And I mean, and, 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 and the Arab world is, 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 is still very, in many ways, like a rural, it's a rural place, right? Like in the sense of like villages five kilometers away can speak slightly different versions of the same language, right? And this is not a big gap, right? So this, this identity is not, pan-Arabism was an idea, but the idea that all Arabs are the same is just not the case, right? Like uh, Saudi Arabian Arabic is almost indis like, indistinguishable from Egyptian Arabic, right? Um, uh, Egyptians, you know, some of them consider those more North African, some Arab, right? Like it depends on what, how they feel about Africa. Um, uh, but, but the Israeli identity was an incredibly, I mean, despite all of the, 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 despite all of the atrocities of creating the state, right? The people who created the state of Israel were like very visionary in their ability to bring people from all over the world, revive a dead language. Because let's be honest, Hebrew was not the language. They they forbid Yiddish from being spoken because that's what everyone who arrived from Europe spoke, right? They had to like basically outlaw it in a way, like refuse to teach it. They they revived the dead language. They taught everyone that arrived a dead language. They brought it back to life. They taught everyone who arrived it, and they gave them all one identity, right? They even let they even made them stop thinking they were Arabs, right? Um, I mean that is in in this in the time period they did it, it is unimaginable. Um, but that never really happened in the Arab world, and an Arab world has never really been uh, unified, and it's also very different, um, and it's huge. And I think it'd be kind of saying like everyone that speaks English is just like we are, right? Um, there are some similarities, right? But it's not like everyone we come across that speaks English is just like everyone else that speaks English. There are you know big cultural differences, etc. Um, so yeah. That's what I would say about that. Um, but I think on the population's comment, yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to imagine, right? Because, because I think you could say, okay, they try to make peace. People don't want peace, right? But I think that's like also uh, a really, an interesting argument that can be used to prevent these things from moving forward, right? Because if you pulled South Africans a year before apartheid fell, they would, white South Africans, they would literally tell you they would die before they would live in a country where black people had equal rights. And then one year later, they all lived in a country where legally black people had equal rights. And none of them killed themselves. Right? I don't think there were mass suicides. Right? And, and black South Africans did not immediately go and kill every white South African when they were given equal rights. There weren't bands of roaming black South Africans that went on killing sprees in South Africa. They didn't exist. I mean, the, the, the text, because of Nelson Mandela and his, like, it could easily have been the other, like in India and Pakistan, yeah. then the division happened, people killed each other by the millions. So. Well, all right, let's be frank though, let's say Israel does agree to let, let's, okay, I mean, let's imagine that the state of Israel agrees to absorb a bunch of Muslim and Christian residents as equal citizens. The Israeli military is still staffed fully by Jewish Israelis and Druze. The Israeli military is still an incredibly powerful establishment. The state of Israel is still run by only elected officials that are almost exclusively Jewish Israelis. They are incredibly wealthy, right? So 
So it's not like pandemonium breaks out and they lose everything. In South Africa, elections had to happen, right? Cycles had to happen. People had to slowly be absorbed into power. And it's not like white South Africans stopped voting for white South Africans when they got an apartheid. They kept voting for white people. There were just districts in which they were no longer the majority. But there were districts in which they were still the majority. Their rights were still, um, their rights were still protected. So I think that's like, I think, I think, I think, let's say that there are 70 terrorist attacks after peace is made in the state of Israel. Well, there are two ways to react to that. You could react that one terrorist attack is too many and the peace ends and we're going back to war. Or you could react with there is going to be a period in which the armed people who didn't want to see this end are going to keep fighting and we're going to have to unite as a nation, right? As all of us. And we're going to have to work together to suppress all of them because we're going to have to suppress the extreme settlers who are going to go shoot Muslims and Christians. We're going to have to suppress the Palestinian militants who want to suicide bomb coffee shops. Right. And we're going to have to suppress all of them. And, and if I think of the nation took that approach, right, then that would end. Um, but I think if the first fighting that broke out of the first bad thing that happened, they said, oh, it's off. It just didn't work. This didn't work. We tried it for a day or a month. It's a joke. I give up. Let's go back to war. Um, and I think that anyone with foresight can realize anyone who wants peace can realize that that is actually the worst path because you'll just end up doing this for decades longer. Um, but for the state of Israel, I would say that there's no incentive to make peace. They, have, they own all of the Palestinian water in the Jordan Valley because they're running out of water. Um, they get all of the benefit from growing extra produce in the West Bank. They have a let-off valve for the poor people that come from other countries. They also have a let-off valve for all of the sociopaths that they don't want inside Israel because they can just send them to the settlements and they can go terrorize Palestinians, right? Right, or all of the people who, yeah. So they, so I think it's like, and, and you know, and, and politically they can use it to get elected, et cetera. So there's a lot of reasons to keep it going. Um, yeah. And Palestinians, like, like, uh, like Mahmoud Abbas, if, if Palestinians got independence tomorrow, Mahmoud Abbas would be deposed, like he would be removed from power immediately, right? He is a strong man. He's in power because he's held on to it much longer than he legally should have. So he actually, in a weird way, benefits from this continuation, right? So that, that happens on the Palestinian side as well. They're betrayed by their own people uh, and their own leaders. That's, that's, a, that's, that's, that's very true. Very, very true. So, yeah. Thank you for visiting the Room of Lives, and take care until the next time.